Welcome to the Snow West Show. I'm Ryan Harris, uh, host of the Snow West Show, publisher of Snow West Magazine. Got to throw in a plug for the magazine. This is our 50th year in production. Uh, Jared and I have been around for uh, most of those, well, a chunk of those a chunk 50 of years, it, right? maybe, yeah. maybe half of those. Right. Uh, you got your roots. Jared Sessions here with us today. You're currently with Torque Link. Torque Link, Bikeman Performance, yep. And man, you got a history in the sport in the West, tuning machines, and we're going to get into that. We're going to get into some technical jargon, just a, a fair warning out there. Uh, if if technical stuff and, and deep tech is your thing, you're going to love this podcast. Then we have Dan Adams, Next, Next Level Riding Clinics, uh, Polaris uh, Athlete. Uh, both of you have climbed backcountry athletes. Yep. Uh, yep. Th- this is this is a lot of fun. So yeah, yeah. I I wanted to get Jared on. Um, you ha- you are like the master tuner, as far as I'm concerned. Me too. Like you you have tuned tuned more individual snowmobiles. Like like a lot of companies will go establish a baseline, and then sell a product. But you, you do so much more than that, right? Like, when you're working for all these companies, and currently with Bikeman and TorqueLink, how do you validate a new product? What's that process like? Man, that process is, you know, you know pretty in-depth. You know, first it starts, you know, you know, in the shop, you know, on the dyno, you know, with a bunch of CAD guys, you know, trying to come up with, you know, either a design of a weight or a tune or springs or helixes. I mean, you know just to try to get a baseline and then then we got to get it in the field once we've kind of trued it on the dyno and you know the tuning is good obviously the clutching is something that we have to do infield and you know when it gets in my hands and I think it's good then I got to put it in somebody else's hands and somebody else's hands because the way I clutch might not be right for everyone right so we have to make it you know for the masses or give it enough adjustability that we can make it perform or act how anybody would want it to act and so I mean we're finally to a point that it's not you know just switch out a weight you know to get a different performance or switch out a spring we've got enough adjustability that we can make any clutching combination act however somebody would want it to act. So. All right so let, let's let's start with just a bone stock sled. Okay. Say, say somebody picks up uh, a 2024 9R or a 23 9R or a 23 Boost or even an 850. Yeah. That it's set up at the dealership for that elevation spec that's been established by Polaris. Correct. So it's got a high eleva- elevation mountain kit. Yep. Uh, what? What does? What can that person do to get more out of a bone stock sled? You know, and the OEMs have done a pretty good job of setting a good baseline that is probably okay for everyone. And you know, there's a lot of people, and I use this phrase a lot. You you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? And so you don't if you don't try something, you don't know if it's going to be better or worse. Um, I mean, because the benchmark is set pretty high with the OEMs, you know, especially with the industry and the market going so much, you know, performance driven rather than just, you know, fit everyone, right? These sleds are pretty specific. So we have to work pretty hard to come up with something that works better than the factory setup. But, you know, there's always something, uh, you know, left on the table where we can get, squeeze a little bit more RPM out of it, pick up track speed a little bit faster, get a little better drivability, better back shift main train, you know, track speed, or if you want to just flat drag race, you know, there's different, you know, setups for all of that stuff, so. Okay, so so let, let, let's dial into, like, a very specific spot. Okay. So, you, where do you ride mostly? Would you say, like, Star Valley, Wyoming? I would say that's pretty close, Island Park, you know, all of that starts okay, out let, around. Okay, let's, like, let's take Island Park. Yeah. That's a generic spot. 
generic start, you know, you're kind of up on the plateau, like 6,500 feet, and you get to go to, you know, 8,500 feet. So there definitely is an elevation increase, which is going to, you know, need some adjusting potentially to maintain maximum performance in that 4,000 feet, you know, elevation change. So if you if you take a, a, a bone stock, let, let's say, uh, let's take a Patriot Boost and let's take a, a Turbo R. Okay. Uh, what What are you doing? Like with all of your knowledge, what are you doing? Leaving the sled stock except for clutching, what specifically are you changing to get more track speed, more back shift, make it ride the way you want? I mean, our full clutch package, uh, you know, starts off with, you know, just, you know, it is a full everything. It's weights, springs, helix, and a secondary spring. So we're changing out all of the internal parts, as well as a lot of times we're even changing out the clutch face trying to get a little bit more efficiency, you know, a little better belt cooling, but we're changing, you know, pretty much, you know, all of the guts or all of the, you know, parts that are, you know, removable or changeable just to get a little bit, you know, it might be only a degree or two on the Helix, but, you know, those degree or two make a pretty big difference. Difference in how? Like, what, what does it feel like? Um, you can get, you know, a little better upshift, but still maintain backshift. You're trying to stay, you know, in the power band, right? So if you leave the bottom of the hill and you've got, you know, great RPMs, and then you hit the, you know, hit the hill, and, you know, your RPMs suck down 400 RPMs. Now you're out of, you know, peak power and peak torque, and so you need your machine to backshift, you know, to get you back in the peak, you know, and so, you know, it could require a stiffer secondary spring, you know, to keep it in the right gear rather than being in fourth gear when you need to be in second gear, so. So if we just took this, like, piece by piece, if I started only by changing my secondary spring, which way am I going? What's that going to do? You know, generally, you know, they seem to upshift a little too fast, get you in the wrong gear. So usually a stiffer secondary spring will allow it to upshift slower, which is usually what you want in a mountain sled, you know, because you're not, you know, trying to get 70, 80 mile an hour. You need to, you know, maintain a track speed or gain a track speed. And, you know, the secondary helps keep the primary for, for, from overcoming the secondary and riding too high in the primary and over shifting and pulling the RPMs down, you know, because it would, you know, the secondary does control, you know, kind of the load and the torque going to the primary. And if you're, you know, over shifted in the secondary, it's going to drag the motor down because you're going to be in too high of a gear. So if I, if I go to a different secondary spring without changing my helix, or if I change my helix without changing the spring, can I get stuff? Can, you I, can, can I get, get a benefit a, out of that? You can get a benefit. I mean, there's lots of ways to skin a cat, you know. Um, you know but you got to get them working together. You know, if you take too much helix without changing the spring, you know, then you're not going to go anywhere. You know, you're just going to be stuck in first gear and just, you know, make you're not going to go anywhere, right? So you, there is a happy medium. You know, there is potentially, if you're trying to make a small increase to do it either with a spring or a couple of degrees with a helix, will accomplish the same thing within, you know, a small, you got a small window to work in. Otherwise, you're going to have to change them both to get them working together. Otherwise, you're going to, you know, overcome, you know, you're not going to be able to get to where you need to be. So yeah. and, and Dan, you're yeah, Jared, Jared's tuning sleds with you. He and is, and I've learned a lot from Jared over the years. And Jared and I have known each other. I mean, he was 14 years a boondocker, making so many things so fast there. And then now, you know, stepping into this this role at Bikeman. And, and what's been so fantastic about it in the last couple of years here is just the, just the way Jared's, like how he spends time. I mean, he's five days a week on the snow. 
So it's not just what he's learned from a dyno, not just what he's learned from like reading some piece of paper, right? You get on Bikeman's website and we can go to it and we can show that up on the screen or in the drop-down description of just like all of the clutching like based on elevation and like what it's all supposed to be. But at the end of the day, you've got to be in the snow to like truly understand like what we're feeling under our feet or under our butt or under the throttle. Like you just understand like where horsepower is being made. And Jared just does it better than anybody I know. And it's awesome that we're nearly the same size. Like he can, we can ride setups that are so freaking similar to one another that it's just perfect. So he's been, he's been a, a, like one of the biggest parts of, you know, being able to tune and make snowmobiles fast for not just myself, but so many other riders. And it's because of just the in-depth, you know, testing and things that he's doing on the snow. He can literally hear a sled through a cell phone and, and tune on it. Like he's yeah, just got that. Stories. Yeah, he's just got that ear and that eye and can step on a machine and just know what it's lacking. We were laughing this morning in a conversation of like how often I don't look down to see RPMs and how often he's not watching where he's riding because he's watching RPMs. So he's constantly looking at what that sled is doing and just trying to understand like how can we always squeeze more out of this thing. So everything he does is about performance. And then obviously you have to back that up with reliability and then just trying to make it a drivable machine. We talk about clutching that is just ruthless on the body like that it doesn't make sense to a lot of people we like machines that have so much drivability you can put confidence in it you can put trust in it and it's it's really fun to watch what he's just been talking about in terms of clutch weights spring helix all of the things that make up what clutching is and how it's just this it's like an orchestra it's like putting it all together in the right spot in the right space with the right weight in the right position and that's when that sled is magic and there's a lot to it and to his point the oems have done an exceptionally good job can you go out and can you just pull the rope and go and the answer is sure you could go out you could have the high elevation of the mountain set up on it and chances are it's going to work okay but as snowmobilers myself included it's never enough we always want more everything is about beating your buddy to the button the top of the hill and i think that that's where jared and bikeman exist so, yeah, that's so, for sure. Jared, take take a primary clutch and break it down like a third grade level. Like, j just give give me an overview of what every part is doing. Like, it's, it's a CVT system, which means the thing is spinning, it's spinning, and as it's spinning, it's it's collapsing in on the belt and gripping the belt. But what what are the weights doing? What is the spring doing in opposition to the weight? Like, how does it all work? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, you've got a primary spring, and then you've got a set of weights, and you know, in order to make this sled move, the weight has to overcome the spring. And the spring is, you know, holding the weight back, trying to, you know, control, you know, the gear you're in. You don't, you know, you don't want it to go from first gear to third gear. So you need to have the right spring rate to keep, you know, the shift profile and, you know, the consistency to where you're grabbing gears and keeping it in the optimal, you know, RPM to create, you know, the power and torque that the machine's, you know, designed to make. So Yeah, it's not a setup just to go from, from uh, engagement to wide open throttle. No. Like, that's not the objective. The objective is to have, like, gears, like a dirt bike does. Yeah. And to be able to, the CVT system, be able to downshift into from sixth to fifth or from fourth to, to third. Yeah. Yep. You know how easy it would be just if you had to just clutch from zero to wide open throttle? I mean, a drag race setup is easy. You know, you just go, you know, get a good engagement and make sure you get some belt squeeze, and then you just got to shoot for a peak RPM, right? You know, it's... It's simple, but, you know, the mountain scenario, there's so many variables and there's so many different riders, you know. I mean, and that's the, the tough part, right? You know, because my clutching might not be for everyone because I'm a, you know, pretty aggressive rider. But if you take even some good mountain riders, 
they don't ever go to full throttle. You know, they, they just kind of mm -hmm. cruise around. And, it's, you know, it makes it tough to make sure that when they want to be in third gear and only a half throttle that they stay in third gear, right? So, so what, what is the weight doing and why is the weight profile so important? I mean, that just controls, you know, the rate of how it, you know, shifts. If you put a really big hump, you know, initially it's going to, you know, it's climbing a hill. And so it's going to, you know, a real, plat, a real flat profile is going to shift slow because it takes a long time for the surface of the ramp to travel along the roller. And so if you put up, you know, a more aggressive hump in it, you know, then it's going to travel that surface a lot faster and put you, you know, and so, you know, naturally aspirated profiles are different from turbo profiles because of where the power is delivered, right? So you have a little bit of a flat profile initially on a turbo because you're not building a ton of power, but then you need it to grab gears fast, right? So you change the profile, you know, to where the ramp moves on the roller quicker. Because you don't want to do that with just a spring. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a really soft spring on the top end and you're going to get no back shift, right? So you're going to get to a high gear fast, but you're not going to be able you get out of the throttle and get back into it, you're going to get no back shift, right? So you're going to have a really flat dead spot. So what's the downside of a stiffer spring if I'm just going for a little higher engagement, but I don't change my weights? I mean, you can get, you know, a little bit out of there, but I mean, if you don't change your weight and you get a little bit bigger spring in there, you're going to be able to control your upshift a little bit more. But if your spring's too, you know, too stiff and the weight can't overpower it, now you're just going to build belt heat or slip and you're going to be, you know, over RPM or, you know, slipping the belt on the primary. Yeah. What's unique about all of it is it's all modular. So for the people that are listening that are like questioning, like, do I have to do all of this all at once? Like, do you have to just go all in? And the answer is no. No. Like, you can. And we, we having the snowmobiles that I do at Next Level, it's awesome because we had a bunch of nine hours last year and we were able to just do, on one of my guide's sleds, we were able to just do just sniper weights. And then on another one, you do sniper weights plus the primary spring. And then on another sled, you do primary spring plus the sniper weights and a helix. And then we just, so we had packages of how we were going to put it together, spend some time on each one of those and find out, you know, benefits, pros and cons, like what, we're, you know, what's happening. And so to everybody, it's like, it doesn't have to be these full blown, you got to go all, all oh, in, all together. There's a gain with every single there's component. A, yeah, there's you know? a slight advantage or edge that you put on each thing as it happens. You know, we just know what the end result looks like. Right. So it's a little bit like where it's like, well, just trust me that we've been down this road, and that's why we put it together as a package. You're seeing everybody kind of create these kits for people. It's because we've done the R&D. They've done the work. We know that there's a little gain here. Oh, yeah, this, was a, this shifted a little bit better. This thing is I got off the throttle and back on it. Like, that made it a huge improvement. Like, let's keep going. And every little way, making those tweaks, and now you've got this stage two or like what we'd call that as a package we've already done the work we already know just how amazing that whole setup is i would relate it to like you know you just put a an intake on your diesel and then you put a tuner intake exhaust on a diesel like there's all those things where it's like by the time we finished the package that's when you notice the real results that you could really really feel it's all modular that way which is great you don't have to go all in so with with your analogy with the truck though it is clutching the same way in that if, if i put an intake if i put a bigger turbo on my truck sure it's going to give me a benefit but it's also going to cause some issues that if i don't also increase my fuel supply increase my fuel pressure increase my airflow increase my exhaust diameter yeah i'm going to run into some problems there'll be some issues there so clutching if i just throw on a helix and some different weights, but I don't change the springs and everything else. Am I 
am I getting a little bit of gain, like maybe right off the bottom, and I'm shooting myself in the foot by not doing the full package? I mean, you definitely could. You know, you can get to where, you know, you just change one component to fix one problem, but it creates a problem elsewhere, right? So, I mean, you may be, you know, gaining, you know, a better, like, overall RPM, but, you know, it's in the wrong gear. You know, you're stuck in second when you needed to get, you know, to third. And maybe you can't pull third with the, you know, the current setup that you have. But if you were to change the shift profile of the weight, because you just went to a secondary spring, now you're going to be able, able to get to that third gear and still, you know, have the same peak RPM. Rather than just, you know, holding it back with either the secondary clutch or holding it back with the primary clutch. I think it'd be important to understand too that the only time it would ever be negative is if you just did something drastic. Yeah. In other words, like you you had the like a stock helix in there and you know whatever that profile is and you went to something completely random and just did that, that could easily end up being a negative. You know what I mean? If that's kind of more to your point of like it actually ended up causing more problems than good, it would all depend on like what that variable looked like. If you put, you know, a weight in that had nothing to do with, with where that current setup is, yeah, that's going to be a total negative. So you do have to kind of stack these things together, but I guess maybe where I was headed with it is that you can do one, you know, f figure out the advantages if that's something you like, and then you'll just start to add to that as you go. So. Yeah. I mean, and the cool thing with our, like our new sniper weight is, I mean, if you want to do, and my setups are going to be different too. You know, if I'm going to go tree riding, I don't, I'll, I'm going to give up a little bit of the top end to get, the drivability, the quick throttle response, the good in and out of it. I don't want to have to be relying on my brake all the time to backshift the sled. Because if you lock up the track, it's going to backshift, right? But you want to be able to get out of the throttle and get back into it without scrubbing speed, per se, right, with a brake. And so you need your sled to backshift and not, you know, be hanging in third gear when it needs to be in second gear so you can make your you know, move around a tree or jump across a creek bottom when you're already rolling. And, you know, you don't want to have to rely on grabbing the brake to try to jump a creek. Sometimes you just need that panic rev, you know, per yeah. se. You need the thing to respond right now. And so if you're in third <clears throat> gear, when you need to be in second gear, you could be in trouble. So And there's not too many mountain riders that, that even care about top end. They want zero to 30 or zero to 20 or zero to whatever. They just want that to whatever that next move is. That's what a mountain rider... It's not even loves, it's relies on. You're in the deepest, gnarliest, you know, that one move to make. You want that clutching or that sled to perform from that zero to get me up on top of the snow and out of that position we're in. That doesn't mean I need this, like, five-minute pull up a hill. There's not that many dudes that ride the trees that want or care about what that thing feels like as it shifts all the way out, top-end speed, top-end power, how it goes down the trail. We want that thing from dead stop to, like, the 30, like, just... Build RPM in that quick little 15 foot because that's what gonna you know I'm gonna get out of that hole and not be stuck. Yeah, but if the scenario happens when I need to do that, I will make an adjustment to my clutch with the same weight, same everything, and I will line up with the guy that wants to do that. That's too. what's so, so cool about the adjustability of the whole system. That's it's it, he's absolutely right. So. You know the weight profile is cool, the adjustability is cool. We can get you know a weight to act like a helix, but we can also make it act like pretty much any other weight on the market with an adjustment, you could make it act like that with just, you know, some simple adjustments. You want it to act like more of a stock weight, you can make, you know, some move some magnets around, move some set screws around, and you can make it act like a stock weight. If you need it to, you know, you know, have tons of back shift, you can add some weight below center, you know, because that weight 
you know, is going to want to backshift really aggressive. You know, if you need a higher engagement, you can shift some weight around without messing with springs and, you know, kind of kill a lot of birds with one stone with, you know, just one weight. And when you talk adjustability, this is, this is like, clutching's come a long way in the last 10, 10 years. It's made a lot of advances years. in the few years, yeah. Um, That's five so years, six on, years. On the snow, you, you're talking about, you have, you have magnets in your backpack, and, and you can well, add the magnets, weight or once you, you have the body adjust, yeah once you have the body adjusted which is going to be your magnets and that's kind of your you know your weight below center mass you know which is kind of your back shift weight so all of that weight is below the center line you know of the rotation right well, so, the, so break, break that down though like like that probably just went over everybody's head what does <laughs> center mass mean on a clutch weight i mean so the weight you know you know parks in a certain position and most of the weight on a normal profiled weight is you know, above the center line of the weight when it's rotating, you know. So we have weight below the center line, which is holding the weight back almost like a stall, right? And so once it comes to a certain RPM and now the weight is over to able to overcome the spring, so we kind of get a slingshot effect, I would say, that, you know, the weight is like stalling, stalling, we're engaging, we're, we're holding second gear, and now the power's there, and now we're going to grab second, third, and fourth gear real fast because we have this, you know, this mass below center. And so through the mid-range, it's going to have a pretty aggressive effect on how it shifts in the mid-range. So it's going to be really rippy on the bottom, but through the mid-range, it's going to pull when you have the power, right? And that's what you need it to do. You need it to make your move, but now you need it to pull to get on top of the snow. But now at a certain point, you're going to need it to maintain RPM and track speed. And so now once that weight gets to a certain spot in the shift, it has way less, I guess, shift force. And so that weight, that the below center mass now has almost become neutral. And so now we're going to be able to hold our RPM. And But once you let off the throttle, that weight is going to want to return below the center mass because it's always wanting to go the other way. And then your top weight and your spring are going to push it back. And so... And that aids in your back shift. That aids in your back shift. So that's where we can get this in and out of it you know you can be on a side hill and not even really have to worry about running your brake and just rip the throttle and it's going to respond every time a lot of clutch setups you watch a guy check a brake every time he chops the throttle in order to get back to the right gear well, we, we we test primary i mean 90 90 of our riding for southwest <laughs> is is testing stock sleds yeah you know current model year prototype uh, future model years so we, we rarely get into aftermarket clutching unless we go ride somebody else's sled, like Dan's sled or, or Chris's or whatever. So we spend a lot, most of our ride is doing exactly what you're doing. Like yeah. to, to force a back shift, we're on the throttle and you back off the throttle a touch and you spike the brake and that pulls everything down and, and lets the clutch come back out and then grab the belt at a, and go again. At a lower yeah. rate. Yep. And then, yeah. So we're, we're forcing a back shift and I bet a lot of riders out there without realizing that are forcing a back shift or they're waiting for a back shift. Yeah. But, but you can make it instant like like if i if i back off i'm going to get a back shift instantly yes just you, by backing can, up. you can back off and get you know if, if stuff's right you can get you can create that without having to check the brake if you do check the brake and that's your style it's just going to even you know aid in that a little bit but it's not always necessary because i mean there's times that you're not able to set up and do that you know so it kind of brings it full circle to what we were talking about in terms of drivability of the sled like we don't want to have to cap, you know, tap brake. You don't want to lose momentum. We don't want to lose mode. momentum heading yeah. up a hill. That you've got to literally. I mean, we get it that they're 500 pounds. It's like they're begging to stop. Mm-hmm. It's not like they coast very well in deep snow going uphill, right? So the ta- the opportunity that I have to tap brake to get a clutch to work properly, that sucks. 
Like that's not what we want. So when you're in a race course, that's seconds you don't want to lose. When you're in the backcountry, that's whether or not you get you know the next 15 feet in that deep snow. So that idea that you have to check brake to get the sled to do what you want. And you can, I would tell you that backshifting when it doesn't work is really easy to recognize. It's when, when clutching is dialed, just like when suspension is dialed. Like when you finally have that, you know it, like you understand it. And you're like, wow, this thing just is performing exactly the way I'm kind of anticipating its performance. And man, when you, when you get it set up just right, that's friggin' awesome. Problem is, is not like you had said, a lot of people are dealing with stock snowmobiles. It is what it is. It's built for the masses. Every OEM would admit to that, both shock setup and clutching setup. It's just built to just be good and be reliable in all those things. It's not until you, you know, stop being complacent, stop being like, well, this is good enough. And you want to get into that next stage of that and that's when you start making these tweaks and yeah. it's it's pretty fun so talk, talk to me about the, like the differences between the p85 and the p22 like is it did the p22 give you a big advantage or is it just a roller i mean a, me myself i mean i have you know good success with both i do like the p22 um, if you are a very maintenance-oriented person, the P85 is a great clutch. I mean, there's a lot of components out there for it, and you can make it really work well. A lot of guys, are, I mean, if I'm riding a P85, I'm adjusting my belt deflection sometimes two and three times a day for you know to make it optimal. And guys don't do that, where the P22 does allow you to always have your belt deflection right, which is you're, you want it to start in first gear. So you want a good tight belt. If your you know, belt deflection's too tight, you're squealing, you're dragging on the engine, it's gonna pull down. If you're too loose, you know, it's gonna, the belt is gonna be two inches too high on the sheaves before it even moves, so you're gonna have like a second gear stoplight start. And it's you know, hard on belts, it's not optimal performance. And you know, so I mean, the, I mean, I like the P22. I think, you know, there are some advantages. I think it, it you know, it is a little bit heav heavier. I mean, it does seem like it in the mid-range, it pulls harder, some higher top end and some higher track speeds. But, I mean, I, I, mean, I can make either of them perform equally as well. But I personally just, you know, for always being right in some situations, the P22 is kind of what I like. You know, there's been a few things and, you know, as far as like bolts coming loose and torque spec and you know trying to keep everything together there's a lot going on there and if you stay on top of keeping things torqued you know i haven't had a whole lot of problems but there is a little bit of a reliability concern and so i see you know people going both ways and you know i'll have a setup for both of them for sure so so across the board from your experience with with the latest generation the new arctic cat clutch the primary yeah skidoo's clutch the p22 what, what are the differences and what are the similarities I mean, now that, you know, Skidoo's gone away from their, you know, their old style where you had like a, you know, a fixed ramp and like a pin weight running on the roller, everything is using a flywheel weight, like a flyweight and a roller scenario. So they're all similar, you know, helix singles, um, secondary springs. I mean, everything is like, you know, the adapt clutch that Articat has and, you know, Polaris, whether it's the P22 or P85, as far as... I mean, they're all on the same playing field as far as, you know, the technology and the way they're working. You know, some of them might have different rollers or different, you know, sliders or different diameters. But, you know, all the concepts are the same as far as the way the clutches work. 
Yeah. Um, I had a question when you were talking about belt deflection. That's that's like a simple thing that somebody can fix. So It's very simple. I mean, I can get on a sled and know within three feet if they've got a broken primary spring, what their belt deflection feels like. I mean, like, how do you even ride this thing, right? And you can, <clears throat> there's a lot of things, you know, by staying on top of your, you know, your primary spring, which is a wearable part, and your belt deflection to make an ex- a horrible experience be really good within like 30 seconds of an adjustment. So if you're if you're if you're starting up your sled and that thing is squeaking and it's wanting to like creep forward, yeah, you're you, you're too tight. You need to open up the sheaves just a little bit. You know oh. that way the belt's not so tight. Yeah. Or you have a broken primary spring. Yeah, or you have a broken primary yeah. spring, right? Yeah. So how common is a broken primary spring? It seems like it's been pretty common as of late. You know, last, some of the last spring couple rates, seasons, yeah, yeah, seems like things have been breaking and pretty hard to tell. It's not just a quick peek in there you know what I mean it's not like when a belt's coming apart it's like one coil right at the top you know and you know sometimes you might not only be down 100 rpms but you know you will lose 100 rpms I can feel 100 rpms some people can't right so it's something to take you know to, to look at you know and if a spring breaks you got a lot of sharp edges it's going to eat into your aluminum it's going to wear parts prematurely for sure yeah and can you get out with a broken primary spring and the answer is yeah yeah it's not fantastic on everything your day of performance riding is done like you should come out and so the idea that for 25 bucks people aren't carrying a spare primary of whatever flavor like literally have something to get you out of the backcountry but man to turn great day or turn bad days into great days or okay days into amazing days it's just like having another ski rubber Mm. you know what i mean a factory ski rubber is 10 bucks put it in your backpack put it in your tunnel bag a factory or any one of these primary springs, they're 25 bucks to 30 bucks, depending on what you're yeah. getting. It's like, have the spare, because we don't know when that's gonna happen. Heck, you could have left the parking lot and it already happened. Yeah. You didn't check from the night before, or whatever it looks like. But those things are, they're, they're great ways to ruin an awesome day, because it's not gonna happen most of the time in a parking lot. It's gonna happen when the boys are out, the pow is good, and now you're yeah. sitting there with a broken part. So The crazy thing is, like, the Skidoo spring is a, a pretty meaty spring. Skidoo doesn't usually have the problem, but, you know, the Adapt Clutch and the P22 and P85, you know, throughout the years, I've seen a lot of primary spring failures, especially yeah. when guys are starting to go after higher spring rates and the power's up, and now we're trying to control these heavier weights. And so, you know, the springs do take a lot more beating than they used to. And there's enough videos out there that exist about how to replace those. That guys, to be honest with you, like a little service announcement is that while you're in your shop, while it's comfortable, you've got the right tools and everything else, there is nothing wrong with pulling that thing apart and putting it back together. Do it there so that when in, you're in the backcountry and you're kind of limited on all the, well, conveniences that you'd have inside your shop, you know what you're doing. But most people are like, ah, that's not going to happen. That won't happen to me. And then when it does, because we both know the bearing on the inside of our primary covers, like that's pretty dang important. So getting that thing centered up, especially on a P22, like you got to know what you're doing. It takes a little bit of practice. It's not like, hey, I saw this on a video. We should be able to get it done. Like I would practice with that prior to it happening. And it just makes you more prepared as a rider. Yeah, there's some movable uh, movable parts for sure. And you don't want to damage bushings or whatever. Otherwise, you know, you're going to create friction that you don't need in there. So, Well, mountain sleds these days with, with, We've got higher performance, lower, uh, extremely higher performance. Yeah, factory for turbos sure. It's crazy. A lot less weight. You know, there's, we're into this age of consumable parts on snowmobiles rather than expecting the entire snowmobile from the ski loop to the snow flap to last for five years. Sure. Yeah. You know, we're, we're consuming tracks maybe once or twice a year, like, a, like you would a rear tire on a dirt bike. Yeah. 
you know, you're going through clutch springs, you're, you're just using parts. Ski rubbers, classic example. Yeah. M most people out there don't know, if you change your ski rubber three or four times a winter, yeah. that'll make a, a world of difference. Or even if you know how to feel when that ski rubber is shot. Yeah, yeah. And there's True. a difference in guys, right? You know, and to each their own for sure. I'm a performance guy, and a primary drive belt is a huge performance piece, right? Some guys are like, man, my, when I first got my sled, made 8,500 RPMs, it ripped, you know, my belt looks good, everything's good. Now I'm only making 8,000 RPM, right? It's crazy, you know, if you don't stay on top of like belt maintenance or, you know, I'm at every 300, 400 miles, I'm putting a new primary belt on my snowmobile because I know that 500 RPMs is important. I don't really care about making 2,500, 2,600 miles on a belt because it's going to do it. But are you going to lose performance? Yes, you are going to lose performance. It's a wear sure. item. It's a wear yeah. item. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and well, and the parts aren't getting cheaper either. So. They are not. Yeah. I mean, belt's a couple hundred, couple hundred bucks. But, I mean, this sport is not a cheap sport no, no matter what, right? No, it's not <laughs> for sure. So what, what, what are your tips for belt maintenance and, and how to get the most out of your belt? You know, I like to keep my clutch um, surfaces clean. I don't like to make them abrasive, you know, because once you do, you know, you might get some more belt grip, but you're going to pull your RPMs down and it's going to create friction on your belt. But, you know, I'm a guy that likes to, you know, lightly scotch bright or, you know, keep the belt dust low. You know, once in a while, I'll even take out my, you know, take my belt off and use like, uh, you know, a maroon scotch bright and then just, you know, go around the you know, the surface edge that it contacts the movable sheet or any of the sheaves and, you know, and then just rinse it off with some soapy water and, you know, let it, you know, air dry. But, you know, that will sometimes take the glaze off the belt and kind of bring it back to life. You know, you don't have a whole lot of time to do that. I mean, you know, a couple, you know, a couple times doing that and you're probably going to need a new belt if you want maximum performance all the time. And how are you dealing with belt dust? Are you just blowing that out? With yeah, air? just with an air compressor. Air truck, yeah. yeah. And a lot of times, just because of the way the reservoir is, speaking to Polaris, it's like where our oil is and how many guys just in a hurry, they're excited, it's a pow day, and they just blah, blah, and they drip oil, comes over the top, or they didn't put their oil cap on or something like that, and you get oil, residual oil down into the, the, the clutch area. It gets on the belt, somehow gets on the clutches. Guys, that doesn't just go away with wear. No. Like, don't just you've go. You've ruined two surfaces. You've just ruined two surfaces. And they so overall addressed. belt life is affected big time by the things that we just, it was a mistake, it's an accident, but guess what? All of these little messes, they happen. It's what we do about it. Yeah. And most people just put the cap back on, close the side panel. It's going to slip. It's going to slide. It's going to do a few things. And all of a sudden, it's okay again. And people are like, oh, that's good. Guess what? That residual oil is still there. It's still I mean, a part of those two surfaces. You yeah. have to take the time, pull that belt off, a little bit of brake cleaner, the maroon Scotch-Brite. And it's just how many people don't do that. And you're it's kind of the same guy that's down 400 RPM that's yeah. wondering what the heck happened. And all of it is, I mean, that's why we talk about the advantage to the P22 is at least we've sort of solved the belt deflection issue because how many performance-related issues we've had of pulling side panels and just looking at the belt and being like, guy, how often has it been since you've even looked at this? And they're like, looked at what? You're like, how many videos and how many times has Chris Brandt told you about belt deflection and what that is going to do? That's not, we don't get special sleds. It's all the same dang maintenance that we're all doing. So you make a mistake like that or you're losing RPMs and something has faded, something tells me that that's clutch related and potentially right at belt deflection and or something wrong with, yeah, with the belt. I mean, you're in the snow, right? You get, your snow is water. You get water on your belt and you slip the belt once. You know, that created a whole lot of, you know, 
it, I mean, it slipped. It created a lot of heat, heat. real fast. And I mean, it's glazed, right? You glazed like your belt. Yep. You either glaze your belt or your clutch faces, and now you've got two surfaces that have been contaminated. So you got to stay on top of that stuff. So. And does it mean things are ruined? And the answer is no. Does it mean things need to be cleaned and maintained? And that would be the answer. Yeah. yeah. So are you, are you washing new belts? I don't generally wash a new belt. I mean, I do make sure my surfaces are new. That way we're working with new surfaces on, you know, minimum the primary. I mean, if you can, you know, throw your tool in there and at least break clean and get, you know, any residual, you know, matter or, you know, belt, you know, rubber that's been stuck to them or something cleaned off, you know, I would definitely recommend that. Or if you can just, you know, reach in there and just kind of, I went nothing abrasive, but just take the glazing off of both surfaces, especially when you're starting with a new belt. Yeah, it's kind of funny how things have they've changed dramatically. We've talked about how specific like the mountain segment has become. And you'd ask anybody that's a dirt bike or a mountain bike rider. I mean, I know you do both of those, right? So it's like, think about how often, like with our e-bikes, let's say it's like, how often do we go through those and like make sure that things are dialed? You know that you're going to go out and you want that next ride to be an, an enjoyable experience. So we pay attention to it. How can we expect any different out of, out of high performance machines that we never take the side panels off? They just get ridden at 8,500 RPM for days and days and days and days. I'm putting whatever fuel in it. I'm not maintaining it. It's living on a sled deck. And suddenly there's this deterioration in performance or in the snowmobile when we've done nothing about it. Yeah. So the, the, the call out to so many people that are just so antsy about, well, what manufacturers are doing or not doing, you have to become a mechanic. Like you, you by, by signing up to own this type of performance machine, you have to either understand that you're either taking that thing to the dealer, depending on how much you ride and how often, right, like what you're doing, and the type of rider that you are. Yeah. If you're going to wring that thing's neck all the time, you have to be willing to pull the panels, pull the hood, do some visual inspections. I am not a mechanic. Thank God I have guys like this and the guys <laughs> at my shop. But we know enough to know that I'm going to pull that stuff apart and really pay attention to it. And it's because not only for the customer experience that's out there using my snowmobiles, but for my own experience. I want every one of those days to just be as unbeatable as the next. And that all starts with just the overall maintenance of the machines. You know, and, so. you know, talking in maintenance and we we're talking belts and, you know, everybody likes to have their brand new spare belt. But what happens when you have a problem with your existing belt? It takes a, a hot minute for that new belt to get to performance, right? It's, you know, it's got new surfaces. I would definitely recommend, you know, your trail ride in on your brand new belt to ride it in and then switch it and put your like new at, spare at, on at there. At some point early at, in the season, break, at, yeah. break in that Yeah, spare. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, you know, Polaris's break-in procedure is more than I would ever do. I mean, if I, you know, at least put 10 or 15 miles or a trail ride in, I feel way more confident that that belt is going to be at optimal performance when I do need that belt to get me out of a spot because if you take a brand new belt and ask it to perform you've likely compromised the life of that brand new belt right away so what, what is a, what does a brand new belt need it just needs some some low load yeah I, I mean I just do some low load some variable speed stuff I don't just go constant you know I want it to grab the belt and you know build some heat in it and then let it cool down and you know even like two cycles of getting you know, a little bit of heat on it, a couple good pulls, you know, some varying the speed and then cool it down. You know, that's how I season my belt and I have yeah. really, really good luck with belts. It's really no different from engine break in. Build it up some, to some temp, let it cool off, build it up to some, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's just kind of seeing that calm before the storm. Cause like you said, I mean, a belt doesn't typically break when you're next to the trail. 
you know, a, a belt is blown and you're in the, you're in the spot, you got your boys and everybody wants to go again. Well, you just put that brand new belt on, tell me you're going to go break it in properly. You're not, you're yeah. going to just send it. What, what's the primary cause of belt failure? Heat? Heat is, yeah. Sure. And, you know, we make some pretty cool, like a cyclone clutch cover that is like, has a built-in fan. It does drop the belt temps by like 30 degrees, creates a huge, you know, underhood pressure. I mean, it moves a lot of air. And I mean, that's probably one of the cooler things we have going right now too, you know, with clutching, just mm -hmm. for belt reliability, you know, keeping your clutch surfaces cool and also creating, you know, a storm of air in your engine compartment. You don't want stagnant hot air anywhere underneath there. So if you can move air and create a pressure inside that engine compartment, that's a huge plus. All right. So last thing here, I want each of you to just run through your pre-ride checklist. But, you know, the sled and the clutching, like what are you checking, but, but everything, start to finish. Like all of your gear, everything that you do. Yeah, take it. Well, I mean, if I'm on a boost or a P, anything with a P22, <coughs> I am retorquing my primary bolt. I know Polaris is addressing a few of those things, but, you know, that's one thing I stay on top of to make sure that that is you know, always to torque spec, which is like 120 pounds on those things. So you got to make sure that you, you know, stay on top of that. I'm checking my primary spring. I'm looking um, at my belt, you know, I'll just drag it backwards um, and just, you know, check the surface areas. Um, I can tell if I've got a burn mark or, you know, anything weird going on with just moving it a little bit, but, you know, looking for just heat checks and then obviously, you know, checking fuel and just kind of a, you know, a quick look over and I mean, Things are usually pretty dialed, you know, that's about generally all I look over, you know, you know, those are the main parts of the thing. So, yeah. You do anything different, Dan? No, I'd say just visual, visual inspection of a lot of those things. And then, you know, you're popping your side panel to put yeah. oil in anyway. You know, don't just do that. Like you're already putting oil in, but take a peek underneath, see what's happening, look for any kind of loose debris. And then on the other side, if we're putting hot food in a, in a cooker or something on the pipe side, there's nothing wrong with, you know, looking around, looking at the base of that, looking at your belt drive. Chances are it's like you got some pine needles, you got some other debris that's in there. That's worth addressing, like yeah. making sure that, you know, you know where you're headed. We're going to get into the middle of nowhere pretty dang quick. And so it's pretty easy operation to go and do that. And I'm not calling it out that people don't do that. I'm just saying that there's, there's some things that you ought to try and, you know, take a peek at. And there's things that you could, I mean, breaking down on the parking lot is fantastic. Breaking down 25 miles back, that's a whole nother you know, that's a day, a day and a half, maybe yeah. even a couple of days, depending on the year. That's, I'm going in on horseback and finding the sled. I mean, how many guys are like, sleds are still sitting out there. And a lot of that, yeah, something happened, right? What it was, yeah. but the ones where it was just some maintenance is probably what could have solved that. You know, those are the ones that are out there kind of nodding right now. of yeah. just saying, yeah, I probably should have looked at that sled one or two times out of the 50 days that I went and rode it. I should open it up and, and take a peek. So. I do a pretty, I mean, I usually do look in the belly pan, make sure everything's good. I usually check all of my clutch springs, to, or not my clutch springs, all of my exhaust springs as well yeah. to make sure they're on. I mean, they're vibrating, they vibrate, they break. I mean, I catch myself in the parking lot, you know, tip my sled left, tip my sled right before I start it, just to listen to it. I mean, if you got something rolling around in there, you better find out what it is before it gets in a quick drive belt or in your clutches, because that could make a bad day fast. You know, yeah. Yeah. primary springs, you know, bolts, nuts, 
tree branches, you know, they'll make a, a rolling sound when you just like tip them one side to the next. Yeah, so. and the way Polaris's work, no matter where that is in the inside of that snowmobile, it'll end up in that belt drive. Yeah. Like that's where it that's goes. That's the lowest part yeah. in that belly pit. We haven't, had belt, we haven't had belt drive failure since 13, right? Where we're yeah. actually seeing some failures within the belt. The only failures we see is an object. Yep. Is what got in there and it blew that belt apart from the outside in. A and it's just a piece of bark, you know, a, just a nut, ice, a bowl, ice can do it from yeah. Yeah, sleds. I clean outside. my ice out from underneath my, you know, my quick drive every after every ride. Or make sure that it's in a heated shop or in my trailer. You know, that's definitely something I do too. Right. You know. Yeah. And then the pre ride on the on the gear is I mean it's it's just as much, right? Everything you're doing. I mean it's the gear you rode yesterday or whatever it is. So you're just doing sort of a visual, like making sure everything is dialed. And then when you get to your electronics, we don't go out with half-charged anything. No. So you've got to, I hear these complaints all the time of just, you know, I just did a backpack review on the new climb bag. And it's like, a guy had a good point of like, why isn't there one central charging system for the whole thing? So it's just like USB, end of the wall, your radio, your transceiver, your backpack, like all this stuff's charging from one spot. And until that magical day happens, We've got quite a few things that we're going to charge, but guess what? I'll, I'll almost guarantee it that every rider going out into the backcountry, your phone is charged before you oh, leave, yeah. and your GoPro is fully dialed. The rest of it, ah, questions. Yeah. We maybe left our radio on. Transceiver, ah, not so hot. But those two items, they're dialed. So don't yeah. tell me that we can't keep track of all this stuff, whether you're traveling or riding out of a shop. You just got to do your homework. You get done with a day of riding, it's awesome. You're getting out of your gear what needs to be plugged in so that I can be safe, responsible, have contact with my crew, be an asset to the rescue, if so, like all those things. It's easy, easy processes. We got this. Well, the best thing you can do is just form a habit. <clears throat> yeah, like, sure. After every ride, just have right. a process where backpack gets plugged in, radio gets plugged in, transceiver gets plugged in. All of that, or batteries checked and yep. changed if needed. All of that is done immediately after the ride when you're in the, in the cabin or in the trailer taking your gear off. Rather than, I'll come back out later tonight and do yeah. that, or I'll hit that, that in the morning. That never happens. No. It, yeah, you do it right then. Yeah. 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 Okay, all right. Well, this has been great. Uh, lots of good tech info. Uh, again, Jared Sessions, Torque Link Bikeman, Dan Adams, Next Level Riding Clinics, both of you from uh, Climb Backcountry team. Uh, check these guys out on social media. Uh, check out Snow West merchandise. We've got shirts, hats, hoodies. Uh, that's kind of new for us. Uh, again, we do have the magazine. We have a digital format and a print format. Uh, you can go to snowwest.com. Cool stuff in there. We have forums, uh, news articles on there. We, we try to stay on top of the latest breaking news. Uh, big things happening at Climb. You know, we'll get into that next week. Oh, yeah. Hopefully with you guys are crushing some of these guys. Look at these mug shots. Oh, yeah. It's like, <laughs> he does a good job. Dan, Dan is a multifaceted talent over here. <laughs> the OG. Uh, All right. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. Good seeing you, Ryan. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan.